Welcome to this episode of the First Baptist Church Victoria podcast. Today we are starting a new series, working our way through the book of Malachi. This sermon was preached live on Sunday, May 21st by Pastor Ben Rosenberger. We are starting the book of Malachi, uh, and I've been excited for this uh, book. I've spent several weeks thinking about what to do, and I really have felt particularly got to hone in on Malachi coming up here. This is really uh, a God book for us right now in many ways. And so I want to start with this, though. This won't be behind you. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke 10 real fast. I want to point our hearts to something because I'm going to preach a sermon today, and then I'm going to stay on the same verses on the same subject for two, two weeks to convey something that I feel like many people... If you're talking about the essentials of what's most important, many people miss some of the foundational things in regards to why you should have assurance in regards to salvation and assurance in regards to God's love. And when life is hard, when challenges hit, when things are going all over the place, our minds always move the direction of what we read in Malachi. Well, God has done all these things for us, but we say, how have you loved us? How have, you, how have we despised you, God? How have all these kind of interactions where we go back and forth with God, missing the heart of God many times because we haven't got the foundations correct. And I love this text in Luke chapter 10, where we see in verse 17 through 20, the disciples come back essentially from doing all sorts of amazing things, even casting out demons, and they're enthused, they're excited. And, and, and Jesus basically says this to them. Let's read verse 17. It says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and all, all of the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Saying, you're going out and casting out demons and you're seeing these great things. And that joy is good. But Jesus says, rejoice in something more foundational and more important. That your names are written in heaven. So whether we're looking at Revelation 3.5 or 20.15 of the book of life. We need to understand this, that he's saying to the disciples, hey, all that stuff is good, but be assured of this. Most important, your names are written in heaven. Does that shake you out of whatever's going on in your mind and in your heart? Because I think we're going to miss Malachi's <coughs> opening first five verses if what I just said to you doesn't resonate in your heart. A foundational truth that's more important than anything else that if we don't recognize that God loves us, he favors us, and he has <coughs> created an opportunity for us to be right with him, that we can live through this life knowing no matter what happens, we are safe because our names are written in heaven because of what God has done in our hearts and what he has accomplished. And that is the fundamental above all other conversations. Malachi's book opens up with the foundational fundamental element. He starts with, in this dialogue of back and forth, not, dis, not agreeing, not, it's, a, it's a negative book in some ways, <clears throat> but God starts with the most important foundational thing. And so my sermon title says it all. Do you know that you are favored? Do you know, child of God, that you are favored? 
Does it resonate with you that you are favored by God, that you are loved by God? You did not do anything to deserve that love, but God just chose to love you. Does that resonate with you? Does that when you wake up and you have all these things in your head, I'm not good enough or my life is hard, all these challenges, does it resonate with you that God has favored you and has loved you apart from anything you've done? He just has chosen to love you. Amen? That is foundational, and I think many Christians don't get that. They don't get it. They, they somewhat get it, but they don't somewhat get it. And when you read the story of God, you see, particularly in the Old Testament, as we're looking at Israel and the story that's being conveyed in Malachi, you have to just settle sometimes and say, God, thank you for, being fav- for favoring me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving me when I don't deserve to be loved. I don't deserve eternity. I don't deserve anything. And yet you just choose to love me. We fail. We rebel. We, we consistently go after idols. I mean, we consistently <coughs> reject you and want to go after all these, just like all the pagan nations, and not accept the uniqueness in you and us. And yet you still love us and our failures. That's the story. So that being said, let's turn open Malachi <coughs> chapter 1 through 5. I'm sorry if I'm coughing. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, let's read the text, and then we will focus for two weeks on this exact subject. And if you can't be here through Malachi or for a week, please go and listen to the the weeks following up. They're all building, and I want you to get the full message of Malachi. The oracle of the word, and if you want to stand, you can. As I read the word, verses 1 through 5, if you want to stand, you can. If you're not capable, don't worry about it. Let's read Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you. He doesn't waste any time. He starts. I have loved you, says the word, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the, um, the desert. If Edom says... We are shattered, but we will rebuild his ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country. And the people with whom the Lord is angry forever, your own eyes shall see this. And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. You may be seated. Oh, (laughs) thank you. So let's do a little work here for Malachi. Malachi prophesied around 450 B.C. in Israel. And by the way, this should be an easy book for you to find because all you got to do is go to Matthew and go to the Old Testament and you are there. 450 B.C. in Israel. He was one of the last inspired prophets before the 400 and 500 year gap in divine revelation between the Old and New Testament. Before the Messiah comes on the scene. I love Malachi because this is the last interaction with God's people. And we see that Some of the worst tragedies (coughs) that we read when we're looking at Jeremiah, Lamentations, and all these things that have transpired and taken place, these these hardships that they've gone through. Then we have Ezra and Nehemiah. We see the temples rebuilt. We see some prosperity coming back. And yet, the book of Malachi is nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. God has blessed you again, and here you are. Nothing has changed. And we see this bleak gap for 400, 500 years. No voice, no prophet nothing. And then all of a sudden, of course, we know John comes on the scene, Jesus comes on the scene. But that's, this is the last book, it's the last interaction between God and his people, 
who are fundamentally still the same problem that began with Israel is the same problem at the end. It didn't matter what God did. Prosperity sent them out to be in exile, punished them with the purpose of saying, I love you, I'm always going to love you, I'm always going to rebuild you, I'm always going to be there for you. It doesn't matter. They still would not get their hearts right. And that's the premise of it. And they, it stops. It's a bleak 400-year period. He lived about 100 years after the return of Israel from their exile from the Babylonians after the days of Zechariah and Haggai. Malachi served God either at the time of Nehemiah or immediately after. It's hard to know exactly, but certainly this is following Nehemiah's book and, and Ezra's book. And we know this because it's written throughout Malachi that the temple is already rebuilt. We see that in chapter 1, verse 13, 3, 1, and 3.10. Nehemiah was the last civil ruler over Jerusalem. And in Malachi's time, the Jews were under civil rule. And we know that there's a governor in place, as Malachi in chapter 1, verse 8 records. So we know it's right in that time. Finally, we know this because Malachi rebukes the same sins as Nehemiah. So Nehemiah's message is the same as Malachi. The same exact things are brought up. In Nehemiah 13, 29, as well as Malachi 1, 6 through 2 through 9, we see the defilement of the priesthood. Don't worry. If you think there's anything negative going to be said towards the people of God, it starts with the priesthood. And God starts there. You're the problem. You're supposed to be my people. You're supposed to be leading my people, and you're not. So it starts there. And that's where he goes. And we see this in Nehemiah. We see this in Malachi. Corruption in marriage. Nehemiah 13, 23 through 25. We see it in Malachi chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. The keeping with God's tithes and giving to God. We see Malachi 13, 10 through 11. Malachi 1, 6 through 2, 9 again. All these things are very similar. So the same things that Malachi was writing about is the same things that Nehemiah was writing about, but the difference is nothing had changed from Nehemiah to Malachi. The, the people's hearts are in the same position. So here's the summary of where we end up in regards to this. God's grace, God had given grace. Jerusalem had been rebuilt and the temple had been restored, which is what all this is about. Malachi is called to prophesy to the Israelites and it doesn't matter whether it was Ezariah, uh, Nehemiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Haggai, Zechariah. All the prophetic hopes that they had, the new Jerusalem, the Messiah, the people felt like, God, you're not delivering. All these promises you said, you, you're going to do these. But look at, look at our situation is what the people are saying. Corruption, injustice, poverty is what we're experiencing. Where is your hand, God? Where is your favor? So that's how this book starts. <coughs> A prophet coming. On behalf of God, discussing with the people, you feel this way, let me tell you what I feel as God speaks. And so what is the big issue? The fundamental issue is it doesn't matter whether it was exile or not. They had not learned their lesson. Nothing had changed fundamentally. Israel's hearts were harder than ever. Now I want to pause before I keep going. Why I like this book and I want to study this book is this. I have had this feeling for a long time being a Christian in America. Again, I grew up in you know, my early times in church where I'd always hear everybody talking about, if we will repent, if we will repent, if we will repent, God will restore our land. God will restore. I've been listening to that in churches for years and years and years and years. And then I keep looking at our country as it gets worse. Morality gets worse. Who could have ever thought just 20 years ago that we would have actual discussions about mutilation of children's bodies and that it would be out of your hands as a parent if, if, if they so chose if, Depending on where you live in certain parts of the country, you may not have a say. You may, if, if you have a problem, they may, take your, they may make decisions apart from you. There's discussions right now where they say, there are kids, not your kids, 
That's happening right now. We, we live in a time that none of us 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 100 years ago could have never imagined the morality problems in our country just based on what God's Word teaches. And yet we, 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 we see this. We see the financial woes. We see the wars. We see the corruption, the injustice. We see all these things. And yet what I never see is God's people crying and weeping and repenting. I don't see that. We say we know that if we repent and we fall on our knees, we cry out, we ask for you to change. We, if that happens, God will bless us, restore us. But I see it get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, worse, worse. And, you know, we still can't get people to come to church. We still can't get people to commit to their kids studying God's word and making that a higher priority. There's still the schools that are going to attack Wednesday and Sunday. I remember living in a community where everything was on Sunday morning. We didn't even have Sunday morning as a sacred time to focus on God. And I remember that being one of those, well, pastor, my kid made it all the way. I almost made it to, you know, the, the, the baseball. He almost made the MLB. And so, you know, I understand that. Okay, great. But, you know, at what point is God a priority? When does God become a priority for you and your family? When? How far does this country have to fall before we wake up and say, God, we need God back in it. We need our kids to love God, know God. We don't need all these distractions from our kids. They need to know God and love God, and we need to love God and produce in them and help them, help them see what it looks like to love God. How far does the country have to get before we cry out? And I say that to you because that's what's going on here. Israel's hearts are hard as ever, and that's the fundamental problem. What does it take for God's people to say, we need you, God, again, we need you? And I say, we're no different than them. We're different in, in many ways, but we're not different in regards to hard hearts and God trying to wake us up to make him the priority. Not just in words, not just in talk. Make him your priority. That's the best thing for your family. God is your priority. To be known as a Christian is number one in my life. When you meet me, Ben matters. I'm Ben. Cool. But Ben is second tier to, I'm a Christian. I'm a son and daughter of God. He has called me uniquely, anointed me as a son and daughter of God. I represent him because that's my priority in life. Amen? So I say that to you to think through. What will we read? Sorry, my allergies are getting to me. What will we read in the book of Malachi? We're going to read about six or seven different disputes and dialogues. God makes a claim, Israel dis, uh, disagrees with such a claim, and proceeds to question God. And then God responds. And folks, God always has the last word. You may have that like, dialogue with God, but then at some point God's going to say, that's the way it is. Boom, next one. Next dispute, next dispute. But in those disputes, you see the heart of God. Because he's entering into that dialogue. He's saying, I've loved you. He's, How have I not loved you, is what he's going to say. And yet the people still, because of their hard hearts only see the negative. So what are some of these discussions? In verse 2, we just read this. In what ways have you loved us? In what ways have we despised your name? Verse 6 talks about. Verse 7, in what ways have we defiled you? Verse 17, in what ways have we, weary, have we wearied him? Verse 7 of chapter 3, in what ways shall we return? Uh, verse 8 of chapter 3, in what ways have we robbed you? Verse 13, chapter 3, in what ways have we spoken against you? Isn't that very much like us sometimes? We see about God's love, and then sometimes we look at it through the lenses of life. Well, God, if you love me, why is this hardship happening? Why am I going through this? Why have I prayed for this over and over and over, God, and I haven't felt your hand, or I haven't felt you answer. I haven't felt relief from the challenge that's going on. 
Don't we often look back at God and he says he loves us and then yet we have that little internal dialogue? But if you love me, wouldn't this be better? Wouldn't you have done something with this? Wouldn't you have changed this in my life? Sometimes that happens and, and that's what's going on here. We get to see a live action dialogue between Israel and God. Where God says something, they dispute it, they disagree, they argue with God, and then God finally says, you know what, boom, done, next subject. And we get to see an intercourse that I think is important for us to understand this dialogue that's taking place. So verses 1 through 5, we just read this text. Here's the first dispute. In what ways have you loved us? God starts, verse 2, after saying the oracle of Malachi came, and the first conversation is God says, I love you. I have loved you, God says. Maybe better understood as this, frankly. I have loved you, I do love you, and I will always love you. I have always kept my covenant with you. I, the love has never changed in terms of my love for you, is what God proclaims. <coughs> but Israel, Israel exclaims, that how have you loved us? You say you've loved us, I, I don't feel you've loved us. Well, then God responds, and he has the final word here. He says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. That needs to be discussed. So we have to go back into Old Testament history here in a second to dialogue about God's response. Ultimately, God has chosen Jacob's family to carry out his covenantal promise, but not Esau's family. That's the summary. What is the summary of this dialogue between Jacob and Esau? It's God chose Jacob's family. And he's saying to Israel, you are the lineage of Jacob's family. And I have chose to favor you and love you. You did nothing to deserve it, but I just loved you. That's what the dialogue is right now. Okay? And essentially God has chosen Jacob and Israel versus Esau and Edom. Bringing us all way back to Genesis 25, 27. And then also the book of Obadiah all together. We're going to look at this in a little bit. We're going to do some history work here in a second. But I want to go a little further. So... There's a long history in regards to Genesis 25 and 27. The story of Esau versus Jacob. The lines of Israel, Abraham's blessing and Edom versus those who God rejected. And so we see literally war throughout the Old Testament. From Numbers 20, 1 Samuel 14, 2 Samuel 8, 1 Kings 15, 1 Chronicles 18. All throughout the Old Testament is a lot of bloodlines and fighting because of this exact thing. Because God chose to bless Jacob and not Esau. And there's been nothing but fighting between the two and the families for a long time. So Edom acts with great evil. And every time we see Obadiah kind of says this in chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 1, verse 10, and chapter 1, the final verse, 21. Edom acts with great evil towards Israel. But you need to understand this. Although God is always on Israel for their sins and idolatry, he punishes them. You need to understand this. God never lets his people be threatened, hurt, or attempts to wipe out God's children. That's never part of God's plan, and he never goes for it. So when Edom is even trying to wipe them out, God says... You will be punished. I will allow certain things to happen for you to wake up and discipline you. And you come back to the point of recognizing that you need God. You need this relationship. But nobody will ever destroy you, Israel. Nobody. Amen? And that's the truth. I mean, we are st- we're not, here, not but a couple like, decades ago, we, we see a miracle happen that here's Jerusalem again. Right? Some of us have missed that. That this happened, we had this long-awaited prophecy that God is going to come back and, and awaken his people and restore his people. It happened. We live in the time that just decades ago it took place. And, and sometimes we miss that. 
We're living in a prophetic miracle of thousands of years that we didn't know was going to happen. And finally, just like Jeremiah said, it happened, not but decades ago. Amen? So, not for Edom, but for Israel. God's people has a special anointing and blessing, and you better take careful not to be against God's people, because God is never evoking his favor, ever. Amen? So I say that to you. So what is this all about? God's favored people are discouraged. They're disappointed in what they thought were unfulfilled promises. They were developing a low regard for God. That's what God is dealing with. So God starts with, I have loved you. And they're like, how have you loved us? You don't care. They have a low regard for God's favor. All the history of who God has been for God's people, they're like, it doesn't matter. You have not done anything for me lately. Amen? We get like that very often, and that's what's going on here. They have developed a low regard for God. Furthermore, they, have a, they are a favored people doubting God's love and faithfulness, which is the same as a cursing God, or sorry, accusing God of lack of love and faithfulness. Let me pause there and say this to you. Maybe some of you right now doubt God's love. Maybe you doubt God's faithfulness in your life. You may not say it to me, you may not say it to someone around you, but if I asked you genuinely, do you doubt God's love for you? Do you doubt God's faithfulness for you? If that's in your heart, this is a book for you, because that's what this book is about. It's some foundational things about who God has been for these people, for the people who have a low regard for God right now. Because in their immediate, they're saying, where have you been? Where are you, God? I don't see you. I don't feel favored. I don't feel loved. I don't feel that you're faithful. And the Bible is saying, I have always been faithful for you. And that's God's reaction to us. And so I ask you, if that's you, to consider this. And here's the huge sermon point. God asked Israel, and we're going to camp on this for the next two, two weeks. God asked Israel to find assurance in his election, his choice of them for evidence of God's favoring love. Folks, I need you to understand, as a baseline of foundational rock, as to why you can have assurance of God's love for you and faithfulness for you. It's not just the cross. It's not just what he did, despite what you, you brought to the table. It's that for God's people... He has always favored them and loved them and treated them in such a way that they don't deserve. He just said, I love you, period. Nothing about what you did. And this is hard for people. We, we, some of us are thoroughly Protestant, and we don't really accept this whole not, not works thing. We do, but in our minds, we almost function like, I earned this, I deserve this. And it's like, no, you don't. Mercy and grace means undeserved favor. And he just loves you. Why? Because he chose to. Period. Don't, don't mix into all the different things Ben's saying. Ben is just simply saying to you, he loves you, he favors you, period. Base, baseline. You've done nothing but God just said, I love you. It's not in your control. As he said, yes, God says, I've loved you. I've always loved you. I love you now. I will always love you, period, in the story. Why? Because I chose to favor you. Does that rest with you? And I'm try- what I'm trying to accomplish is some of us may have a low regard for God because we haven't fundamentally let that set in. Before you did a thing, you were just loved, period, in the story. I love you. I will always love you. I have always loved you. No matter what's going on in your life, nothing, changed about, about, nothing changes about that status. You are just loved. You are my people, sons and daughters of God, period. Nothing else to say. 
Now come back to your God and get right. <laughs> That's what God's going to say in this. But of course they reject that. But folks, I have to say that to you. They are chosen. They remain chosen. And they remain God's favored people despite all the adultery, all the rejection of God, all that we read in regards to, the, you know, in, in terms of Babylonian and all the exile. All of that changes nothing in God's plan to say, I love you. I will always love you, and nothing changes. Even in your sin, I'm trying to discipline my children because I love you. And even as we see God restored everything, Nehemiah, Ezra, all those books were about restoration, but nothing changed in their hearts, and yet God still goes forth with his plan. 400, 500 bleak years between Malachi, what's coming? All these prophecies that they say, where are you, God? They're coming through John the Baptist, through Jesus, the Messiah actually coming. It's coming but they can't see it. So let's take a little historical look here at Genesis 25 through 27. I told you I'd come back to it. So ultimately, again, God has chosen Jacob's family to carry out his covenant promise, but not Esau's family. So we have to address that. And so with that said, let's take a look at Esau and Jacob. So Abraham's promised son is Isaac, right? You guys know this. He married whom? He married Rebekah. The story begins with this. Just like Sarah, in terms of barrenness, that's how uh, uh, Rebecca basically began. She couldn't have children. Despite God's promise for Abraham being passed down to Isaac. So they have the kind of similar, not as long as Sarah, but it starts off the same. I can't have children, yet I'm the promised blessed one that's supposed to bring down the lineage, right? And so that takes place. They had two twin sons. One was named Jacob. One's name is Esau, Right? So Isaac is, is the son of, of Abraham, the promised son, and he has two sons, and so we have a dilemma. Only one of them is going to have the lineage that's going to go through them, okay? That's what we know. And God was only going to bless one family line with the promise of Abraham. God tells Rebekah this before they are born, that the younger of the twins would be the one chosen by God to be blessed, going against all the custom of the day. So essentially God tells Rebekah, listen, your younger one, when he comes out, and she hadn't been born yet. The babies hadn't come out yet. They already know there's a dilemma here, and it's supposed to be Esau, and God tells Rebecca, guess what? It's not going to be Esau. It's going to be the younger one. And so Rebecca knows that before any of this goes in, and what happens is essentially Isaac favors Esau. And Rebecca remembers what the Lord said all the time. It's going to be Jacob. It's going to be Jacob. So that's how this whole story starts, and from the get-go, God's in all of it. So Esau is Isaac's favorite, and he was characterized as a hunter. He had the birthright. He had the right to have all the blessings that are supposed to pass on to him. That's what's supposed to happen. And then we have Jacob, Rebecca's favorite, because he enjoys staying at home. He enjoyed his mom and hanging out with his mom. And mom had that, I'm sure, she treasured that special thing that this is going to be the promised child. And yet dad is rejecting him and is like, this is the promised child. And Rebecca's over here like, I already know that's not the case. That's not what God told me. And so we have this playing out. In this time, the oldest firstborn would be given the birthright, which means that the, basically at the end of Isaac's life, Esau would receive, due to his birthright, the land, the money, most of all the things of the eldest son. Furthermore, he would also receive an extra special blessing, which we don't know about yet, which we know is going to end up being, you are the line of the Messiah. You are the line promised from Abraham. There's an extra blessing that we don't know really about, but we know there's supposed to be an extra blessing. So as the story goes, Jacob was jealous and always looking for an opportunity to get the birthright from Esau. So, of course, they know about the situation, and Jacob's always trying to trick his brother into it. Like, give it to me, give it to me. 
So one day, Esau, as the story goes, gives it all up for stew after being tired from hunting, and he gives up his birthright. He's like, whatever, just give me food, and you can have the birthright. And really, the Bible depicts this as he despised his birthright. He didn't care. It wasn't important to him. But Jacob, it was very important to him, you know, so that's how this plays out. So Isaac calls Esau in his time of, of, of near death. He tells Esau, it's the time to give you the special blessing. Asks for a final meal before he gives him the special blessing. Essentially, Rebecca and Jacob trick, uh, trick Isaac uh, to give, basically, uh, Jacob the blessing promise. So after this, we already know Esau had signed away his birthright to Jacob. And essentially, as Isaac is uh, passing on, they have another trick. They return, and essentially, Mom and Jacob, and this is a problematic thing for us to talk through, they, they make up a scheme to which he looks, and he appears like Esau, and here comes Isaac, and he gives the promise, that special blessing. He promises it on uh, to Jacob. And then essentially, right then, later on, Esau comes back, having already been tricked out of his birthright. Now he's been tricked out of that special blessing that he was supposed to get. So Esau returns after the blessing, has been told that both Isaac and Esau realize what had happened Uh, that had taken place. Isaac claims that the blessing cannot be taken back. So there's no reverse in this. Jacob got everything. He got the birthright. He got the special blessing. And Esau, you despised your birthright, and it led to even you being uh, not getting the blessing of your father. So So this becomes a massive contention, right? For the rest of Esau's life, for the rest of the lineage of Esau, it's we hate Israel. We were promised this. We didn't get this. And yet, in the middle of this, we have Jacob, who does this, but yet, this was all part of God's plan. God chose to bless Jacob, considering Esau to have despised his birthright for whatever reason or divine purpose, God has chosen to reject Esau. So, from here on out, Esau plots to kill Jacob. Rebekah finds this out, and uh, Jacob must leave in, uh, with God's blessing upon him. So, he doesn't even get, get all the birthright, because he's fleeing for the rest of his life. But that being said, that's the story. So we're left with some confounding questions on this story. Why did God choose to pick Jacob and not Esau for the lineage of Abraham's promised line? Why? It's a fundamental question. Why? I don't have answers for you. I'm just telling you would ask the question. Why not Esau, God? Why? Was it because of God's foreknowledge of Esau's despising his birthright? Why, why would God bless a liar, a trickster, and Rebekah and Jacob's plotting? Questions such as, does God work through deceit? would come to mind? And what, what does this mean, that God is the one who pre-told Rebecca of his choice line, setting into motion all these events? So is Rebecca to blame for tricking whenever God told her this is what's going to happen and she's just trying to make it happen? It's a confounding, it's a confounding story. It is. But it's kind of one of the things I'm trying to say to you, which is why I need to get this point across. It's confounding that God would just say, I chose you. Do you understand that? That's, that's My whole point for the next two weeks is to say the same thing 500 different ways for you to get it. It's confounding that God just chooses to love you. There's no rhyme, no reason, nothing you've done. He just favors you. Does it make a lot of sense? No. Could God have done something differently? Yes. But he just chose to love you. And so... We look at this in Romans. You can turn to Romans 9 with me, where Paul specifically addresses this. <clears throat> and there's no way to avoid this text because this is the text in the New Testament having to do with this subject. 
And this is the point and the connection point in the story to Jesus. So verse 6 through 13, but really verse 11 through 12 is what we have to hit today. I had to get a lot of background in today, so my sermon next week won't be as long. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. Verse 10. Now, uh, tune in on these ones. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had, not, uh, had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, because of him who calls. Let's read that one last time. Though they were not, born, not yet born, this is Esau and Jacob. Though they are not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Esau had not done anything good or bad. Jacob had not done anything good or bad. So this isn't a conversation of Esau did something really to to, to not get the birthright. It's just simply they were born to Esau, Jacob, nothing good nor bad is what the scripture teaches. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, See, nothing good nor bad before they were born to deserve what happened in God's favoring. Nothing they did works to deserve. Jacob did not do anything to deserve this favoring. He just got favored. You catch that? Romans 9-11. You need to wrestle with that for me the next two, two weeks. Okay? Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Some questions we were asking earlier. He says, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Did y'all catch that? There's no way for me to avoid Romans 9 and the beginning of Malachi pointing to Esau and Jacob. What did Esau and Jacob do, good or bad, to deserve the outcome of that story? Nothing, Paul says. What did Jacob do to deserve the favor and not Esau? Nothing. What is happening in this story? What is Paul telling us? God just chose to bless, period, because God chose. God has a history in the Bible, by the way. Of man would pick Saul and God says, nah, it's David. Right? The, the, the normal line here would be Esau would get it and God's like, no, no, no. See, I don't want Esau or anybody in his line to think he did something worthy of this. In fact, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to pick Jacob and bless him so that nobody thinks that it's because he did anything good. No, no, no. God just favored him. Period. Said, you, I'm going to bless. Even when you reject me, I'm still going to love you. Because there's not going to be any boasting it's going to be boasting in what God has done, giving us mercy and grace. Guys, I want to accomplish one big thing. If you are saved, do you boast in the fact that you are favored? That God loves you? 
that you didn't deserve any of grace or to have your name written in the book of life to one day go to heaven and know for the rest of your lives on this earth that you are secure, that your name is written in heaven because of what? Because God has chosen to awaken you and say you are a son and daughter of God. Amen? Do you, I mean, this is what I'm trying to say to you. If we don't get this right, we're going to be, to me, theologically, all over the place, missing, missing the great blessing of knowing you are favored. God has elected you and made you know him. There's favor that God has given you, not because of any works, not anything you've done, just because God chose to love you. And that's what this story is all about. What is Paul's point? His point is this, we are not saved by our works. You're not. It is not by your works. It's not by your goodness. As the Bible teaches in the Old Testament, your, your goodness and your righteousness is filthy rags before all, God Almighty. You did not bring anything to the table in terms of goodness. He simply chose to give you mercy and grace. And you accepted it. And now you and me can choose. We, we can made the decision to follow him. But in that, God favored you for, for you to know who he is. So verse 16 says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Both Jacob and Esau are flawed biblical figures. This story highlights that God's grace is not based on our goodness, but rather on God. So the foundational truth is, if you believe in Jesus today, it is not because you are smarter, more worthy, or better than anyone else. It is simply because God has shown you favor and granted you God's mercy. As the band comes up, I want you to wrestle with me on this as we open the book of Malachi. There is no way for me to begin the book of Malachi without pausing and stopping and saying, do you know that you are favored, that you are loved, that God has allowed for you to have mercy and grace, not because of anything you deserve? You have not done anything to deserve salvation. You have not done anything to deserve that his righteousness that he died on that cross for should be impugned to you. That when God looks at you, he sees God's righteousness. You have not done anything to deserve that. It's just simply God said, and he awoken in you for you to become a child of God. I don't know your story. I don't know your testimony. I know this. The first time I heard the gospel message preached at Sagemont, when I heard it preached, I immediately said, yes, God, I'm a sinner. I want to know that I am a child of God. I want to, I want, I want to know you. I got baptized quickly. I got rebaptized because I didn't even know what was happening. The church was just throwing me in a pew, getting a number. But later on, I realized in ninth grade, I'm going to follow you with the rest of my life, God. And then God said, I'm going to call you to preach. I don't know what I did other than God just awoken me because of the gospel message. And I accepted that gospel. And now as a mature Christian, I look back and I say, thank you for favor, God. I don't know why you woken up my heart. I don't know why you chose to show me my sinfulness and your righteousness. I don't know why you would cause me to serve you for the rest of my days. Why would you choose this guy? Of all people, I'm short, I'm loud. You know, you may not even want to hang out with me, and yet you come hear me preach. I don't know what God's doing, but he said, you're the person that I'm choosing, and he put me in the path that he's called me to this. And he also chose and awoken my heart to his salvation and called me a son and daughter of God. And so what I want to say, and we're going to spend the next week, you can do some homework. We're going to talk about Ezekiel 16. We're going to talk about 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 12 next week. We're going to take this same subject and, and, and marinate on it for a couple of weeks. Because I really think there's many of us that don't understand mercy and grace. 
you haven't celebrated mercy and grace right. Because we, we have this mindset of mercy and grace, but God, I did something to deserve this. Or some of you still wrestle with whether you could lose your salvation or not. Let's be honest. Some of you are not sure you're saved, right? How many more Hail Marys do I need to do? How many more prayers? How many things do I need to repent of? Do I need to go talk to somebody else that gives me confidence that I have salvation? How about have you accepted the grace of God? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Is He your Lord and Savior? Are you willing to walk with Him? Are you willing to learn His Word and let it change your heart? Are you willing to let the Holy Spirit do a work in your heart? If that's you, then you are saved. And God says to you, like He says to Malachi and the people who are hard-hearted, He says, I love you, I've always loved you, I will always love you. You didn't do anything to deserve being favored, I just chose to favor you. Accept it. You know, sometimes with accepting God's grace, you just bow your knee and say, thank you. I don't deserve this. Thank you. That's the response. That's the right response. Not, what did I do to deserve this? You did nothing. You bow your knee and say, thank you, God, that you gave me mercy. Others I know, friends, grew up in the same church as me and have rejected you, can't stand you, don't want nothing to do with you. Why did you allow me to see you and your beauty and them not? I don't know. I just know that I do, and they don't. Thank you. I count it as mercy of my God, grace of my God, that he would awaken me to his beauty and his wonder to be saved. And some who had the same exact teaching, heard the same stuff, nothing, dead hearts, don't care. I'm not going to worry about that. I'd rather spend a lot of time worrying about, thank you, God, that you awoken in me to know you. I don't deserve mercy and grace, but you have chosen to give it to me. I don't deserve it, but I'll take it. And I'll say thank you and praise you all the days of my life. Because at least, no matter what's happened in my life, I have the foundation of God loves me. Because he chose to love me and favor me. Thank you, God. Do the same work in my children. Do the same work in our church. Help us know that you've given us mercy and grace. Thank you. Let us go proclaim your mercy and grace to all that need to know that they don't have to do anything to be saved other than to accept Jesus Christ work on that cross and what he's done and make him their Lord and Savior and they will experience the same thing as me, undeserved favor, just simply because God loves. Amen? So don't be Esau and upset. Be Jacob. Just accept grace and mercy. Thank you, God. I bow my knee and I accept your grace and your mercy. Thank you that you've called me son and daughter of God. Nothing I did to deserve it. There's no point in boasting in my works or anything else because it's filthy. It's what? what standing before God Almighty that made trillions of galaxies and I'm going to stand there and be like, yeah, but I, I serve somebody today, God. Come on. You died on a cross. You made a way for me. You covered my sins. You called me a son and daughter of God. You made a way through mercy and grace for me to know you. And I am favored. We're going to talk about that next Sunday. We're going to go into some other texts to put this on thick. But God says, I have favored you, Israel, of, of, of all people. I did not favor Esau, I favored you. Could you rejoice in the favor that God has given you this morning? There are many people who don't know God, may have grown up in the same situation as you, but for whatever reason, their hearts are heart, they don't love God. But you, for whatever reason, do. And God did a work in your life. Would you, like me, acknowledge the mercy and grace of God and the favor of God? And for the rest of your days, no matter what you go through in this life, your name is either written in that book or it's not. And as he says to those disciples, they come back to 72, talking about God has given me power to overthrow demons and all these things. And Jesus stops and reminds them of something that I'm trying to do with you for the next two weeks. 
Don't rejoice in all those things. Rejoice that your name is written in the book. Amen? There was no threat to those 72 that their name was going to be written out of the book. There was no threat that they were going to do something to earn that written in the name in heaven. Simply, God just did a work in them, and they are sons and daughters of God. And they knew right then and there, rejoice in that more than you do casting out demons. Amen? Can we rejoice today that our name is written in the book? If that's not you, I would love to talk to you because I hope you know Jesus. I hope you can rejoice like me that God says, I have favored you. And we may have some, well, God, how have you favored me? How have you given, given me righteousness? How have you taken care of me, God? We may have some of that dialogue with God, but I hope you fundamentally know he has favored you. He has loved you. If you are a Christian, that's because God has given you mercy and grace. And he loves you. And that should be the base of all of our faith and faithfulness. Nothing in this world, nothing we do, nothing we're going to do, nothing that's going to happen can take us away from the love of God. Because he has already given us mercy and grace. And he does not evoke that back. Either you've been given it, you've accepted it, you're a son and daughter of God, or you're not. And if you are, rejoice that you've been favored. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you for today and this opportunity to look at your word, to dialogue about a deep subject of you favoring Jacob versus Esau. Lord, that you have chosen to awaken in our hearts an ability to know you, to accept you, to, to, to understand, Lord, that we deserve to be um, in hell. We deserve horrible things in terms of just not, not heaven. But Lord, you've chosen to do the opposite of what we deserve. You've given us not what we deserve, but Lord, what you just give us through mercy and grace. Help us to marvel in grace and mercy. Help us to marvel in what you're doing in our hearts and what you've done in our lives. And may all of us walk away with at least that foundational knowledge that God, you love us. Despite how I feel, despite circumstances in our life, despite the challenges that are coming, we know that, Lord, we have the foundation of your love because you have chosen to love us. Help us to rejoice in that. Help us to rejoice and share that message to everyone around us that they would know that they are secure in your love as we are. We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you want more information about our church, feel free to check us out at fbcvictoria.org. There you can watch our sermons live on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Central Time. You can also watch our archive sermons on the Media tab. Again, that's fbcvictoria.org.